Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle in 1962, last Wednesday's afternoon, they'll bend your ears with reckless self-abandon. The amazing spider talk, the amazing spider talk, come swing through the air, sit back and prepare for the amazing spider. Hello, I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, which definitely count. And I'm Mischievous Marchinacchio, and I, too, own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, including the negative issues. But I will say the annuals don't count. I will count the, the negative issues, though, Dan, because, you know. You're just going to hang this around my neck forever. I, I, I get the feeling. I mean, forever or until you just get it, which I know you will. But, you know, until yeah. that time, I, I will hang it. Correct. It's hung. It is hung. All right. <laughs> Well, welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining us for the first episode of season six, the the much wanted and, and long delayed season six of The Amazing Spider Talk, the show where two fans and collectors uncover the strange, fun and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. Hey, Mark, since season five, I've had a child. So you can imagine why season six got as delayed as it did. I mean, you had a child. We had a 60th anniversary. There was like a substitute co-host. A lot has happened, Dan. And that's just talking in the world of Spider Talk. But we are here. We're doing this. And I will say, if you want to swing along with us on our journey through Spidey's past, present and future, you should subscribe to Amazing Spider Talk on your favorite podcast app and then get caught up with all of the wacky things that have happened over the past year since we ended season five. Absolutely. Well, this podcast exists because of the support of our Patreon members. So if you want to receive early episodes, exclusive artwork, and keep this podcast going, go to AmazingSpiderTalk.com and consider joining our Patreon. I mean, by the time you're hearing this, we already have episode two of the sixth season on our Patreon for you to listen to. So if you're just eager for more content, that's the place to go get it. I mean, we're not even done with episode one and we're putting out episode two. It is it is a crazy world we live in. But I will say one thing that isn't crazy is that every episode of this season features artwork by comic artist Nick Cagnetti and is available to our Patreon members unlettered and in stunning high resolution. Yeah, we always look forward to Nick's art for our seasonal content, and it's been a little while since we've had him on. Uh, he's been working on his own book, Pink Lemonade, from Oni Press. We're very excited for that book and for having Nick back for this season. But in this season of The Amazing Spider Talk, we're going back to the mid-80s when The Amazing Spider-Man title was handed over to one of the most legendary creative pairings in comics, who were just starting their creative partnership, Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends. It was a time of immense change in the comics industry, but together Tom and Ron returned Spider-Man to its Ditko-inspired roots to create one of the most beloved runs on the title. And to kick off this season, Dan and I will be discussing our thoughts on this beloved run and how we believe it truly represents the end of an era of comic book making in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man. 
Sometimes referred to as house style, we are talking about the care that the creators took in the continuance of a Silver Age legacy started by Steve Ditko and Stan Lee, which served as the inspiration point for all subsequent Spider-Man stories. That legacy can be felt throughout the DeFalco and Friends run, a run that stood on the precipice of great change in the comic book industry and Spider-Man himself. And man, that is some real highfalutin language there, Dan. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome, awesome. For this episode, we're going to be specifically talking about the DeFalco Friends run in Amazing Spider-Man, which runs from issues 252 to 289. That's a little bit disputed, you know, like maybe 252 is a stern issue. Also, inside of that run, there's a number of fill-in books that feature either the work of Tom DeFalco or Ron Friends, and some feature neither of their contributions. (laughs) And those are the ones that we're not really going to be focusing on today. But either way, I think this run run of comics is just flat out an excellent read and would serve as a great entry point into our following conversation or Spider-Man in general. So if you haven't read this run of comics, we do recommend you check it out. Issues 252 to 289, a great place to get started. So let's get started about our conversation. We're talking about the Friends DeFalco run. Mark, I want to kind of, before we even get into the specifics of all the various elements of this run and what we think makes it special, I want to know personally what you think of this run. Do you have any personal history with it? And where does it sit for you in the pantheon of Spider-Man creators? You know, it, it's it's funny, Dan. This is one of those runs where I feel like having this show and, and growing this show has made me a bigger fan and, you know, feel a more personal history to it than maybe I would have if this show had never happened, if that makes sense. The most basic way of looking at my personal history of it is I started reading Amazing Spider-Man and Spider-Man comics in general almost immediately after the the, the conclusion of this run. You know, I, I started, it was early David Michelinie, just before Tom McFarlane came on the book. Any kind of connection I had to this was kind of like as... I started to get a few years into my run, getting some back issues from this era and be like, oh, okay. And not really putting two and two together. Like I I, I recognize characters like Puma and Silver Sable because of their appearances during my my early, like kind of childhood peak of, of reading comics. Again, I wasn't really putting two and two together. And frankly, it was through, you know, working with you and working on the show and getting to interview, I mean, at our very first con together, Tom DeFalco, where I like really kind of made a deep dive about, you know, just just everything that he worked on. And that was kind of frankly what what started my my fascination with with the whole Hobgoblin thing. I mean, like I, I was fascinated with how Hobgoblin was kind of botched, frankly, from, you know, for for a while now. But it was kind of like, again, like putting two and two together like oh we were going to meet Danny Figueroth we were going to meet Tom DeFalco we were going to meet Jim Salakrup all these figures that were kind of central in those issues and it just kind of got me down the rabbit hole and then I feel like a few months after we met Tom you had had your one-on-one with Ron Friends and that was such a transcendent experience that like I just felt like you know, we, we, we had had this like kind of connection for life, even if it was kind of a, almost a, 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 a synthetic connection that was created through the show. I don't know. Um, so like, I, I you know, I don't want to I, I don't want to sit here and lie and be like, oh, man, I, these were the comics that defined me as a kid. They weren't. But now that I go back 
and and had these experiences and got to you know work well, i shouldn't say work got to, well no i did get to work with tom defalco he wrote the forward to my book you know what I mean? <laughs> I <laughs> yeah mean, which yeah. is like pretty amazing and like you know what do we talk about like you know the 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 slumdog millionaire of it all for us sometimes you know what i mean like like how crazy is that but like at the same time it's like oh wow like like yeah, like I, I, I think these comics. If it had just been a year or two earlier, these comics would have absolutely defined how I viewed Spider-Man. Because now they view how I, they define how I view Spider-Man. They're just they're like you said, they're just like the perfect jumping-on point for someone of that era. I, 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 I think it is among the best runs of Spider-Man. Yeah, and I, I, I'm very similar to you. I mean, I, I started a little bit later than you did, kind of at the tail end of the Michelini run. That run was really dominated by these books that sold like crazy and the speculator market going up on all these titles. And so for me, while I was trying to get new books as they came out and and kind of halted during the Clone Saga, a lot of my purchase power really could only occur in like, cheaper back issues. And so that's where the like Tom DeFalco and Ron friends run really kind of took up in my brain, you know, and I, I, you know, I, I couldn't afford green goblin issues, but I could afford hobgoblin issues and, and things of that sort. So um, I think this is kind of the first kind of not contemporary run that I really paid a lot of attention, attention to as a reader and so therefore, as like a very young person, it took up a very formative place in my mind. I think it's well documented on the show, my love of, of this run of comics and specifically of Ron Friend's art. And probably, you know, if anything, as a young person, it was probably because I, you know, couldn't get a hold of Ditko comics other than like, you know, maybe a reprint here or there. And to me, Ron really kind of, we're going to talk about this today, kind of recaptures a lot of what. I think was special about uh, the Ditko comics. And so he was kind of a very early artist for me to kind of pay attention to. Not to mention that like Kid Who Collects, Whatever Happened to Crusher Hogan, the latter of which is from this run, were two of the earliest Spider-Man comics I ever read. You know, they also kind of formed, and I think those are great comics to read to really understand Spider-Man as a character. So there was something about Ron Friends' art that stood out to me, you know, whether I was aware of it or not. Uh, I, I, like you, think this is um, one of the best runs of Spider-Man. I, I actually would place it, you know, I know we put Stern up in this kind of very lofty place. I, I would put this run in a similarly lofty place. I think it has a lot of the things that I have really come to love about the character of Spider-Man, perhaps even more prominently featured than in the Stern run. I mean, if only that we get like the return of Mary Jane and these kind of elements in there, the kind of like hard luck superhero, I think kind of takes even more of a precedent here. And for that, it, it feels very like a, at the time, modernized Ditko. To me, that was what what makes it and still makes it stand out. The kind of adherence to legacy or the origins that both Tom and Ron put into their work here. So um, let's talk about that very topic. The topic of the day here and this first episode of season six is that like when you and I were designing this season, I, I kind of put out early that like I didn't want to just talk about this run overall, but I wanted to talk about it as kind of truly the last like kind of reflection of the Silver Age 
in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man. Yes, we've had things like Untold and things like that. But in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man, the book would go on to, I think, try to attain a bigger thing as its place in Marvel Comics continued to expand. And the Michelinie run is a great example of that, which we'll be talking about in Season 7. But here, this is Spider-Man at its most like simple, basic, and I think raw since the Ditko era and kind of is like almost like the kind of belt, like the, the, the send off to that type of Spider-Man story. And so I want to kind of define what that means to us. So Mark, how, what, what does that mean to you? When I said that to you, did that immediately click? I would just kind of add the, the, the note of it's Ditko, but it's also, there's a lot of, I think like the John Romita stuff in here as well uh, from the Stanley John Romita. I think, I think, you know, I, I, I kind of view this era as echoing like Amazing Spider-Man issues like one to a hundred in terms of like where it is on the on the on, on the scale. Like I feel like once Jerry Conway took over, you know, he he certainly wanted to try and make his own voice on it. And I, and I feel others who had followed did a similar thing. And, and, and Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends were like the, the two creators to come on and be like, no wait, no, like let's 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 do something that harkens back to this era. And, and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about some of like the specific themes, but like, I'm trying to describe it in a way where it's almost like, and, and not to sound obnoxious about it. It's kind of like a vibe. You know what I mean? It's like, like, if you know, if you know, you know, it's, it, there's, there's just a general feel, uh, aesthetic, just tone to this whole run that like, that goes back to, the themes and the storytelling devices and the language and the bombast of that Stan Lee, Dicko, Ramita run and, and, and just really captures it in a way that doesn't feel completely out of date. Like it, it still feels of its time, which is in the eighties, like, especially when you compare it to other comics, but like, it's kind of like the kinder, gentler version of '80s comics. I mean, this was this was also a run, and we talked about this a lot during our Stern run, uh, our, our our Stern season, where you know, like there was such this emphasis at the time of I think of you know, and this was caused by like the Frank Millers of 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 the time of like kind of getting like darker and grittier in in comics. You know, DeFalco and friends kind of were like, okay, look, we're gonna we're gonna write a comic that 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 takes place in the modern era, but is not going to dwell in that, that dark and stormy element because at the end of the day, Spider-Man, he's the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man and, and DeFalco has said that many times. He's like, you know, it's, it's the dark and gritty streets of New York, but the friendly neighborhood kinds of New York. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, that, and, that, and, that, and I feel like that's what comes through here. And that's where I feel like it really does capture like the 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 Lee and Dicko and Ramita books. I mean, you know, like I mean, obviously, like Lee and and will end up being Gil Kane, but they did like books about drug drug use and stuff like that. There were darker tones, but like there was still kind of just like a an aw shucksness to it. And and I feel like that's what the Falco and Friends have. I mean, is that is that too? Um, am I answering? A, you know, defining something by just like listing the the word that I'm supposed to be defining, or or, or have I given you some kind of semblance to work off of here, Dan? <laughs> no, totally. And I, I wanted to kind of add, add on to that. Like, you know, you could say that they were trying to like echo Stan Lee and, and Dicko and Romita, but I actually think that's who Tom DeFalco and Ron friends are as well. Like they've been doing this kind of book 
across many different types of uh, you know of characters and books and they're still today doing this kind of like aw shucks as you might call it comics like they really believe in like comics for all ages and the kind of like kind of 1960s heroism you know in these books like I, you know the, the, there are stories that I just would not put them on because the, I just don't think that's who they are despite their talents let, let's talk about their talents you know like what Ron Friends right we've had him on many times and and this is to say we have the interviews Mark referred to um like the one, you know, the ones we will be talking about. We have so many interviews with Ron Friends and Tom DeFalco. Go to our Spider Talk Back Issues podcast, and man, we've got so many good things on there for you to listen to if you want to hear from those people. We'll probably make reference to those interviews many times. But what is it about Ron Friends' pencils here that you think refer back to that Dicko Ramita era? What are some of the elements that show up in this book? From a structure standpoint, I mean, you know, compare, take take some of those friends, early friends uh, issues especially, and and put them next to Dicko issues. And like, what what are some of the similarities? You see, like, there's the eight nine panel pages, which I, I you know, like, okay, fine, like anyone could do an eight or nine panel page, but it's like you know, kind of like those those small little squares, but telling like like doing as much storytelling as you can visually. You know, like like pe- that that was one of the things that people just love about the Ditko run is just like how how densely visually plotted those books are and 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 friends does that it's 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 not that they're wordy it's it's there's not a lot of dense text on those pages it's it's just like i gotta show a lot of action here and the only way you can do that is just by gritting eight or nine panels on a page and doing it so like that that is like you know, first and foremost, like what always stands out to me, but just like even the visual style. Now you could talk a little, maybe some of this was being defined by the inkers, including, you know, the, the infamous Peter Parker hammerhead <laughs> visuals that showed up here. <laughs> I think it was what Joe Rubenstein that did those the inks on that. There's some backstory to some of that, you know, in terms of, you know, the anchor maybe being a little heavy handed and friends not necessarily loving it. And the editors calling friends about it and causing a, a bit of a ruckus. But let me just say, if you look at especially because I think some of those panels in question are like actual flashbacks, like they're from issue, I think, 258, the, the, the one with the black suit and the red, red and blue suit fighting on the cover. I think it's 258, which shows a flashback of like Dicko era Peter. And like, it is it is like looking at Dicko drawing Peter Parker from 1964 on the page. I mean, you know what I mean? Like friends, friends just completely captures it. It's not like he's he's not tracing it. It's just but like his his Peter is Dicko's Peter. You know what I mean? Like there's there's just no other way to to put it. And on top of that, like a lot of like the Dicko people themselves are like in these books, like Ned Leeds and Betty Brandt. I mean, okay, we have MJ who is a Ramita character technically, but like she's not like the 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 Am. Margaret sex kitten MJ in a lot of these issues. You know what I mean? Like she's, she's a a little harder edge to her, which is probably, you know, that was always, again, part of the backstory of why maybe, you know, Lee, Stan Lee wasn't that upset that Dicko left the book because he wanted to unveil uh, Mary Jane and didn't trust Dicko to like really wow her up. And then like also like the, the opening splash pages and a lot of these issues are again, very of that era of the silver age where we've kind of gotten away from that. I mean, now we have recap pages, so we definitely don't have it. 
again, like it's it's not a, a copycat, but it it, it 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 is such an homage. I think is how I would put it. It's it is it is you know when you talk to Ron and when you talk to Tom, I mean they 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 have such reverence and respect for this era. Like you said, this is just who they are, and it comes out in every page. And like it, this is like these. It's like these are the comics I read, and I'm going to make comics to be like the comics that I read growing up. And that's that's what this this run is. And that's what it looks like visually. <laughs> and the writing, I think it's very similar too. It's hard to capture Stan's unique voice, um, but I think DeFalco does about as good of a job as he can. He's got like Stan's witticisms and, and kind of light snarkiness and Spider-Man's humor. Uh, I think it's like really like pitch perfect Stan, you know, it, 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 it's like light and mocking, but never really that mean it's playful. And I, I think that's a lot of fun. And, and, you know, you've got like Peter's internal monologue, like all throughout this thing, you know, it, it's him like, you know, the weight of the world on his shoulders and you've got the omniscient narrator, you know, which, Nowadays, we don't get in in any of these books, which frankly, like uh, like uh, I, I miss, you know, setting the stage or laying out the drama in a poetic way. And, and so you've got Tom DeFalco doing that. And that that is definitely a trope of a bygone era. I mean, did Michelini do that? I'm trying to even remember. I, I imagine he must have. But not as not as with not the, the kind of punctuation that DeFalco did, you know, <laughs> you know, I, I think if you just talk to Tom DeFalco, uh, his voice, maybe literally and figuratively, is similar to Stan's. You know, like there, there is that kind of like I, I, I dare say Borscht Belt, but I, I, I don't think that that's accurate. But like, there is a sort of kind of like cranky uh, sense of humor, that kind of playful crankiness, and. Uh, that kind of threw you the first time I think that we we ever met him. It's like you were like, is he actually upset with me? And I was like, no, I think I think that's actually just his sense of humor. It's like it's a uh, bit. It's yeah. a bit, Mark. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So let's talk. Let's talk about some of the elements that like occur throughout these stories. So, Mark, uh, you have one flagged here: soap opera storylines and a focus on the supporting cast. Something that's Dicko and and Lee and Ramita would do, and it's definitely at the forefront here. Yeah, I. I, I, I definitely feel, and, and this is probably one of those themes that I feel actually kind of borrows more from the Ramita run than even the Dicko run, because I feel like, frankly, Dicko was probably like, ah, uh, you know, I, I, who, who are these, who are these, these moochers uh, in Spider-Man's supporting cast? No, I mean, like he, he obviously focused on the supporting cast to a degree, but like I, 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 I do feel like. You know, things like love triangles and kind of like, you know, is this character turning evil? Like these are these are very like at place in like the Lee Ramita years. So like, you know, like what what are some of like the and, and it's certainly like I think one of the big changes that came when Ramita came on was like this idea of like, you know, like these subplots with the with with the B characters, if you will, the supporting characters, like they were just kind of like these like ongoing subplots and like, you know, they would kind of like have their own story within a story over over the long haul. And 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 we got a lot of that in this era. Like we had like the whole Ned Leeds, Betty Brandt, Flash Thompson, Shashan, Love Triangle, Quad Quad Quadrilateral, whatever you want to call it, in terms of where these characters were gonna end up. I mean, just, just a lot of people treating each other really poorly. Yeah, is, yeah, is what yeah. That is. Or and, and yeah. then like kind of and treating each other poorly, and then like throwing themselves at the others, like ah, oh, but I love you, baby. You know what I mean? Like very, very soapy, <laughs> and and, and, and this, uh, very Archie. 
Yes, yes. Which I mean, and it's worth noting, DeFalco came from Archie. Uh, you know, he 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 was an editor for Archie Comics before he joined Marvel in the late seventies. But like, I mean, heck, even. You know, one of our favorite issues of all time, the 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 return of Mary Jane and her origin story and all it's called All My Past Remembered, which my goodness, like that sounds like an episode title for like days of our lives. You know what I mean? Like it's, it does. It's just, it does. It, 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 it is so soapy. You know, then, of course, we have like, the I mean, p- it, it, it is a story where characters look into the water and see the reflection and then it dissolves into a flashback. Like if there was ever a soapy trope, that's it. Yeah. Soapy tropes. But like but again, they were not the first i mean like like i feel like ramita did this a lot in his run like with with like with like gwen and mj and stuff like that lots of daily bugle i mean like i mean and and roger stern had the daily bugle too but i feel like the daily bugle was probably at its most prolific of a character since the the silver age during this run everything like the the whole arc of ned leads i mean i feel like and and this might be a Dicko and a, and a Ramita thing. Like, you know, like one of their favorite tropes was like, here, here's this character. And, you know, we're supposed to trust them because we know them and Peter knows them, but could they be evil? You know what I mean? Like is, is, you know, is someone the big man that way? Is J Jonah Jameson, the big man, you know what I mean? Like, I, like, it, you know, like it's Ned Lee's the hobgoblin. There are all these love triangles. And then there's like, they actually like, have the, the consummation of of the love of uh, Harry Osborne and Liz Allen. And they have a kid, which is, I mean, like bringing children into the mix. There's nothing more soapy than that. <laughs> and, 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 as and as they have a kid, Harry's fighting his impulses to turn evil himself because he's got that background with the goblin serum. So uh, very, very high drama, you know, but like high drama as it relates to like people drama and 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 love and romance and betrayal and heartbreak and people stabbing each other in the back, sometimes quite literally, if you're Ned Leeds, that that is like so <laughs> Silver Age, like OG Spider-Man. And and, you know, like th- this run has it like in just spades here. What, what are some of the things you've picked up on? Well, you know, I want to talk about like beyond the supporting cast, there's all this kind of soap opera stuff for Peter, too. And you were mentioning the Daily Bugle. Um, like, I think this run also really highlights the financial trouble that Peter is in throughout. I mean, he lives in this really kind of like not great apartment, although this one's one of his better apartments, I guess. You know, with his uh, landlord being a prominent character in, in the run, like it's really like rooted in the kind of like blue collar, like searching for money kind of nature of Peter Parker, which obviously was a huge part of the Stan Lee era um, on the book. Like in this run, there is a sequence where the Beyonder from Secret Wars 2 turns a whole building into gold and Peter gets a hold of a golden notepad and they milk that for real drama throughout this run. Like I couldn't imagine that happening today and being worth like even a, a second of time, you know, and here that notepad would save Peter from some trouble if he were to use it to make money, but he feels morally wrong about it. Every, every bit of like him making money also is playing into the soapy drama uh, of this thing. And that is reflected in Peter's inner monologue, which we, we talked about it a minute ago, you know, that that's really huge here. Maybe one of the reasons they got rid of it is that the you know, writers used to drown these books in, in word bubbles and, and thought balloons and 
things like that. You know, it's, I, I've lamented many times on the show that like the lack of this voice, you know, rem- like distances us from Peter as a character. And here that inner monologue, is really, you know, an essential part of the comic uh, as it was throughout most of the runs up to this point, but especially in, in the Lee era. I always think of there's this great scene and I'm, I'm trying to remember, is it 275? Dan and Ron friends talked about this, I think, in one of the first interviews he did with us where, you know, it's it's Peter and his inner monologue. And and he's thinking back to the Sin Eater storyline that Peter David did, which was like, you know, and again, talking about kind of like the differences in tone, you know, Sin Eater story. And we'll we'll talk about that later this season. You know, a lot of, you know, very emblematic of the era in terms of dark and dark and stormy, if for lack of a better phrase uh, of, of those, uh, of, you know, of comics. But, you know, the scene eater like uses his shotgun and, and Spider-Man jumps out of the way, but someone behind him gets shot. And like in, in the, the Falco Friends run, like they, they kind of break that down as like the Beyonder is testing him. It's like, oh, you know, like I, I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, like I'm, I'm just ravaged with guilt here. I don't know. Like it's 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 such a it's such a bygone era of storytelling. 275, one that we left out of our anniversary coverage because it's a 37-page book-length epic that also <laughs> reprints the origin of Spider-Man. Very specific, 37 pages, Mark. I was going to say, I didn't think they could make uh, comics in 37 pages, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently they can. You're right, that 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 was the one uh, that, that uh, occurred in. Uh, I also wanted to mention, you know, like going back to the original uh, run, you know, we saw not just the characters like, you know, Ned Leeds and and, and other uh, characters from the the Dicko and, and Ramita era, but we get like original characters like Crusher Hogan coming back. And we even get like some new characters that echo former characters like we get Nathan Lubeski, who, you know, is definitely a fill in. For Uncle Ben, like at least he's meant to take that position, and I, 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 I miss old Nathan. I wish, I wish he could come back from the dead every now and again. I mean, how did we not get him in Dead No More or Clone Conspiracy, whatever you want to call it? I mean, you know, <laughs> but it, but it, but it's 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 funny. Like I think Nathan Lubetsky is kind of like a stand-in for Uncle Ben, but he's like a stand-in for like Uncle Ben. If Uncle Ben had lived and lived a kind of troubled life you know what i mean like because i feel like that's what came out more during this run we we got nathan in in the stern run but he was kind of like the jolly old guy that was making aunt may happy you know like there was no there was really very little drama to nathan during that run i felt you know the the, the drama was just like oh i don't want the vulture to kill him you know what i mean <laughs> you know like <laughs> the vulture is attacking the nursing home oh my goodness nathan you know like that was kind of what it was at but but like you know it, it's like aunt may has this relationship it's an adult relationship here but nathan is you know i mean i mean the crusher hogan story which we've talked about at length on this podcast before but i mean it's worth saying once again i mean it's like it is like the ultimate silver age peter conundrum of like well i can help this person or i can help nathan i can help crusher hogan or i can help nathan and he chooses crusher and of course you know he wins for losing or he loses for winning or however you want to put it. But you know what I mean? Like, but someone always has to suffer. It's the monkey's paw of Spider-Man. And that and that's what comes out uh, in in that uh, issue. I want to talk a little bit about the black suit saga itself, Dan. Like now, 
this could just be like my crazy affinity for this storyline. But like, I mean, all the way down to the, you know, the cover of 252, which again, as you said in the beginning, we could argue, is that a Stern issue? Is that a DeFalco issue? I mean, I think it's it's plot by Stern, sto- uh, script by DeFalco or something like that. Correct. I mean, yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely pencils by Ron, Ron Friends. So. Yes. So it is. I mean, first of all, it's a direct. The cover is a direct homage to Amazing Fantasy 15. But I feel like that whole run of issues, the the black suit saga, if you will, it's like 252 to 258. There's a lot going on. You have the roses coming into this. You have, you know, the red ghosts and the man apes and all that kind of coming into this. So there's a lot happening. Like, so I'm not <laughs> saying it's a direct allegory, but like it kind of feels as like a second generation origin story because it's like it's peter getting you know let me let me break it down like this it's peter getting new powers and and kind of discovering that these new powers come at a cost because the suit there's something up with this suit uh so it feels very dicko lee amazing fantasy 15 but kind of like you know the the og version of the bendis decompressed storytelling version of it <laughs> you know what i mean like it takes takes six sto- six issues to figure this out instead of 11 pages i don't know what do you think am i am i am i reaching here uh, no, I don't think you are, but I also think it's kind of a miracle that it worked out that way, given the kind of behind the scenes story behind the black suit, which we'll definitely talk about during this season. They they wanted it. They didn't want it. So they had to get rid of it. And, you know, I think it's just a testament to like Ron and and Tom's storytelling ability that they were able to make it feel like a Stan Lee story or classic Spider-Man story, because like it really was kind of editorially driven in, in all aspects. And I think like they're good writers, right? They, they managed to tell the story to, to make it that way and make you however many 40 years later argue on their behalf. I don't think it's a reach, but I also think like it wasn't intended that way initially. Gotcha. Okay. That's fair. You know, like, but a happy accident, but it's an accident, but it's, but it makes sense all the, all, all the same. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and you, you've even got like, uh, you know, the fantastic four thrown in there and, and that's, you know, like a reference back to amazing Spider-Man number one, you know, if you will, I mean, there's, there's not many Spider-Man fantastic four stories like, uh, you know, up until that point. So randomly bringing them in there in, in this way does feel like kind of almost deliberate, you know, maybe to refer back to that kind of thing. And I know for me, like I, I, I had like a collection of stories and, you know, re- reading that and Amazing Spider-Man number one, I did make that kind of mental link in my mind at a young age. Well, I feel like even the, I mean, the symbiote is like kind of trapped in the glass tube at the end. And it's very, you know, like, I, you know, obviously Spider-Man on the issue, you know, cover of issue one is on the outside of the tube. But still, you know, it, it works, right? I mean, like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, one, one of my favorite things about uh, this run is it's kind of focus on street level villains. I mean, I feel like every run starts off nowadays saying like, guess what? It's back to basics. We're going to really focus on street level villains. But like. Like this is like the run I'm kind of like other than the Lee, the Lee stuff that I most associate with street level villainy. You know, we had the the Kingpin stuff kind of come in and out over the years, but like that stuff kind of got displaced in, in, in if, uh, for a while in this book. And yeah, you had some stories here and there, but it was mostly big superhero stuff. I would say like the majority of the issues in this run are about like, these power brokers, you know, the Kingpin, the Rose, the Hobgoblin, like everybody who like kind of factors into 
you know, this run ends on the gang war. Is that is that a successful story? No, for reasons we'll get into, I'm sure. <laughs> but uh, you know, like that, like that, that is the culmination of of this run is that putting all of these street level forces against each other. You know, that again, like I said, goes back to the Lee era where that was also like a very primary focus. Yeah, and I even feel like the Hobgoblin himself, which I mean, obviously was was Roger Stern's creation, but like. I mean, we got a little bit of a glimpse of it towards the end of the Stern run, but I feel like like this run specifically kind of turned Hobgoblin more into a crime world figure than than like a supervillain. You know what I mean? Like it, it's he, he's he's jockeying for position with 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 the Rose and with Kingpin, and they're all like, you know, well, we got to get rid of this guy because he's a he's a loose cannon. You know what I mean? And it's it, 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 it's very reminiscent of like green goblin versus crime master versus you know that you know all that from the dicko era then you take a character like the puma who i feel is probably of of the of the villains that were created during this run is probably from a power set is is a little more elevated uh, you know more more so over street level um but like he 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 still has this kind of dicko-esque element to him where he is a he is a somewhat sympathetic character he's not like like flat out evil but he's someone who has these powers and those powers have like corrupted his choices you know it's kind of like what i refer to as like the doc ock or the electro or the sandman end of the of the spider-man rogues gallery palette which is like you know it's it's the inversion of spider-man it's they have great power, but they are using those great powers irresponsibly versus, you know, the kind of street level thugs, which are just, you know, they don't necessarily have great power, but they're just these agents of chaos creating problems for Spider-Man. So I, I kind of like that there is a little bit of a balance in terms of the villainy here as well. I love the Puma and I, we're going to talk about him later this season. Um, I, to me, he's kind of like a, a cool update on Craven the Hunter. You know, he's like taking these jobs you know, from for, as a mercenary, but he's also got this like whole other life, you know, like outside of his power set. And I, I really like all of that about him. There's like a secret identity element, which, you know, isn't really always um, the case with villains. Uh, it's not a mystery, but like it's, it is a perfect inversion on, on Peter Parker, the secret superhero uh, character. But that's to say like one of the things that I think is most exciting about this run is you know, it just like the Ditko run. Now, I mean, of course, the Ditko run had to feature new villains because they were inventing everything, you know, uh, out of the gate. But I don't feel like they ever relied too heavily on repeating the same cast of characters. There was always somebody new, even into the Ramita era. You know, they, they, they brought people back, but it wasn't obsessed with bringing people back. And here we got a bunch of new characters and uh, new characters that I would dare say, like, have kind of become iconic. Like, I wouldn't put them up in the same league uh, necessarily as the original Dickos and the Sinister Sixes. But, you know, there's the Puma. I think probably the biggest creation out of this run is Silver Sable. You know, she's not been in a movie yet, but she's been in the video game in a very prominent way. So I think, you know, that's a pretty big stand up for her. You know, lesser forgotten characters like Manslaughter and Slide who I will argue was probably the inspiration for Lube Man in the Watchmen TV show. <laughs> they look identical. Try to tell me otherwise. All right, all right. 
I feel like the boys probably have a character like that too. I don't know. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, yeah, they probably do. Slide, Slide to me is like the most Dicko design character that Dicko didn't design. Like if you told me that they found some old scrap of paper that had Slide drawn on it and decided to like re up him, like I would believe it. Like he looks like a Dicko design. Yeah, I mean one hundred percent. It's it's funny not to digress here a little bit Dan but like you know very earlier in the show you mentioned kind of your access to the to this run being like affordable back issues and when you said Silver Sable it kind of sprung this memory from me and I, I, I'm pretty sure I wrote about this on the very first Chase and Amazing blog but like the first appearance of Silver Sable 265 that was like you know, I, 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 I remember I actually got that that comic as a gift from my parents because I was like, oh, I, you know, I, I knew the comic book store had it. And I was like, oh, oh it's, a, cool. it's, it's a first appearance. You know what I mean? Like, I I, like, <laughs> I, I didn't even really know. I, I knew a little bit about Silver Sable at that point. But like, I was just like, oh, I need to get a first appearance of somebody. And, and like that. So that was like my first first appearance comic, uh, you know, like this, you know, $15 at the time, $15 comic or something like that for, for the first Silver Sable so definitely a legacy there I still don't love the character and I would probably even not be afraid to say that to Tom and Ron uh, if we if we had to talk about it but you know what are you gonna do <laughs> so uh, I like the character I don't like what's being done with her now but I think we've discussed that on another show speaking of villains you know the the other thing I know we've talked about the hobgoblin mystery like ad nauseum on on this podcast but it's important to note like that's another Another like, you know, uh, Leeism or Dicko Leeism is the kind of ongoing hob or goblin mystery that, you know, works its way through the criminal underworld throughout the run. And here we get the same with the hobgoblin. Was it resolved as well as the goblin mystery was? No, uh, we've, we've well, discussed yeah. that a lot, but you know, again, it, it's all interconnected to these gangs and there's a big mystery behind it. And, you know, that is definitely like hearkening back to that original run of Spider-Man comics. And, you know, and it even incorporates the daily bugle into it as Dicko did where you start thinking, well, wait a minute, is somebody in the, in the bugle involved? You know, it, it's a perfect way of kind of like meshing all the elements of Spider-Man's life into one mysterious character and the resolution of that, which uh, go back to our last season and, and listen to those three episodes that, that uh, trilogy of epics. And not to rehash last season here, but like I, I would add, you know, I think part of what made the, the define this run regarding the Hobgoblin mystery was that not that the mystery wasn't central to the character in the the Stern run, but like kind of similar to what we ended up getting with the Green Goblin. It was it, it became much more of a I felt it became much more of a guessing game during the DeFalco friends run. It was like, maybe it's flash. Maybe it's Ned. Maybe it's this guy. You know what I mean? Like, like you, 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 you kind of like during the Stern run, you had the whole issue with like lefty Donovan and it wasn't lefty Donovan. And then like, he kind of shows up at the Kingpin's country club or whatever you want to call it. And it was like, Oh, well he's somebody who has access here. But like, you know, like you didn't have it to the degree of like, it's this guy. No, it's this guy. It's this guy. It's this guy. You know, like, you know, the, the, the cue the Spider-Man meme of pointing at each other. You know what I mean? Like, uh, that's that, 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 that's so much of what the Hobgoblin is here, and 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 that again is very reminiscent of of the bygone era of of Dicko Lee, Ramita, etc. 
The last thing I wanted to say about this run, uh, you know, as an overview is like, you know, the run famously ended early, you know, and we've discussed the machinations and had all the people involved in that on the show at some point in time, whether they're willing to admit it or not, you know, is that this run lasted like 37 issues and there were some fill-ins here and there. And so like it lasted basically about the same length as the, the Stanley Steve Dicko run did. There's something to be said about shorter Spider-Man runs and how fondly we remember them, you know, before they kind of, you know, spin off the track, you know, I think it's, it's pretty understood that the longer Spider-Man run goes, the worse it typically gets. And I wonder, you know, just to kind of put a pin in this, you know, how much that brevity, you know, really plays into how much we enjoy this run. I mean, personally, I would have loved to see this run continue. I know that might have meant no Michelini and and McFarland to completely reinvent the you know popularity of this character, but I do think this run had something special and that I, it will always linger in my mind as like what else could, you know, beyond the Hobgoblins reveal, could Ron Friends and Tom Valco have done? if they got to extend the run to the time that they wished they could have. That infamous Hobgoblin issue is kind of emblematic of the whole run in a way where, and and, and look, I'm not saying like it defines the whole run, but I, I, I feel like when I think of the Falco friends, yes, it was short and I'm fond of it. But I also think of like the, like what could have been without some of the editorial machinations and 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 drama and you know like like as good as this was this could have been like like how much better could it have been without all that interference and 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 garbage to slow it down and 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 frankly by the time it kind of resolved itself tom defalco became the editor-in-chief of marvel so I I, I, I I still kind of feel like he won the war, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? Like you don't you don't you don't run the whole damn company <laughs> if you're the loser. I mean, well, maybe I don't know. Maybe you are. I, I mean, what do I know? It's important that you're not including the the length for which he ran the company, uh, which was very short lived. I think of this as something I'm very fond of, and yes, I agree. It was very you know like the brevity is is a part of that but i at the same time i i i often do wonder how much better it could have been with with certain factors playing out the way they did like you know like it it, it just you know it feels like there was still a lot of untapped potential here and i don't know if that untapped potential was this run extending another two or three years but like it resolving in a different way than it did i guess that's kind of what i always think of when i think of this run I mean, the thing to hold up to it really is Spider-Girl, you know, the longest running female led comic, you know, lar- largely run by DeFalco friends and, and Pat Olive. The success of that book, I think, only showcases how natural of a fit, you know, this team is on a title like Spider-Man. And that book goes a lot of crazy places you know, maybe not all of them would have fit in the world of amazing Spider-Man, but you can certainly see like the, 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 the authorship uh, is of, of top class here. And it would have been nice to know what, what more we could have gotten out of it. So 
either way, Mark, we got what we have 37 issues of this run and we're going to be, you know, talking about that for a whole season. If that sounds like overkill, I assure you it's not because, you know, this this run does have a lot of things to say about it. I think some of them we talked about today. If only it only highlights how excited I am to get into the weeds with you about the DeFalco friends era of Amazing Spider-Man. So, Mark, why don't you you end the show for us? Oh, man. All right. Fine. I'll, I'll, I'll get to the finish line here. <laughs> it is that time, of course, time for all good things to come to an end. So we want to say thank you to you, the listeners and viewers, for tuning in to this episode of The Amazing Spider Talk. Yeah, and I'll say our next episode is going to be an interview with Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends talking about their partnership, and it can be listened to on our Patreon. This podcast exists because of listener support on Patreon. For only $3.99 a month, you can help support our show's existence while getting early episodes, including these seasonal uh, episodes, the very week that we make them, exclusive artwork, and a ton of other bonuses. So thank you to everyone who already supports us and the work that we do. To download our earliest episodes, including interviews with legendary creators like Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends, J.M. Demetrius, Mark Bagley, and more, subscribe to our Amazing Spider Talk Back Issues podcast on Apple Podcasts. And I'll add our David Michelini uh, interview is up there now. So, you know, like this whole era is just swimming. We're closing the loop. The Back Issues <laughs> podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So this podcast was edited by Rick Coast. The video version of our show is available on YouTube and was edited by Alex Galucki. Our artwork comes handcrafted by artists Ron Friends, Sal Buscema, and Ray Sunzer. Our theme songs were produced by Ryland Bojack, Tony Thaxton, and Spider Madge. And our animated intro was created and performed by Josh Sutton. So, Mark, until we have nine panel members on our podcast, what's our motto? With great podcasts, there must also come the amazing spider talk. <laughs> <laughs>